0: You said he was a trash, right? That was Ed. And you're a pastor, you're a Christian, and you said that this other human being was trash. And you said that because he did this really horrible thing years ago when he was 18 years old, right?
1: But do I know who he is behind closed doors? I don't, and nobody does. And I feel like a lot of times, especially public figures, they have a public persona that can be a different way. Tensions are high. It's day one of our trip, And we're embarking on a docu-journey to capture the stories of abuse survivors and experts who understand the anatomy of abuse within the context of the church. I'm taking three men through some pretty uncomfortable conversations, conversations that in retrospect, I wish I would have handled with a little more grace and a little less defensiveness. This week, you're in for a treat. Welcome to the first documentary-style podcast for Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. Today, I am giving you an exclusive behind-the-scenes docu-journey for an upcoming film that I had the honor of directing called Church Two. Church Two is a documentary which will be premiering this week. I speak with experts and survivors of sexual and domestic violence as we discuss the intersectionality of the church and its relationship to this particular type of trauma. This podcast is part one of a multi-episode series where you get to observe conversations that took place between myself and my producer behind the scenes. The actual documentary, Church 2, will be premiering at enditnownorthamerica.org this week, Friday at 7 p.m. EST on the End It Now North America Facebook page. And if you missed the premiere, you can check out their YouTube channel, End It Now NAD, where both the documentary and bonus materials will be available. We want to thank the Adventist learning community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. You can get updates on the documentary by subscribing to End It Now NAD on YouTube, and you can follow me at Kendra R. Snow with an X. But right now, this is AdventNext. I know the complexities as well as the injury of abuse, especially when religion is involved. So my failure to maintain a calm stoicism may speak against my credibility as an objective observer of the facts, but that's why this series isn't focused on my opinion, but on the experience and expertise of professionals. Right now we're in beautiful Portland, Oregon, and we're here to interview our first expert. My producer is very familiar with difficult, controversial topics. He did a documentary on race relations in the church called The Wound. He is a 26-year-old African-American male. And it was out of his desire to learn more about the issues that women face in the church that even began this journey. The sun is about to set, and we're gathering our audio and video equipment when this conversation between myself and my producer breaks out. I really wanna know what's going on. What are some things that are like concerning for you about like the outcry, the Me Too movement well, or the domestic violence thing?
0: Well, so I'm, I'm thinking about this 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 film um, and like one of the thoughts I keep having about like, okay, we're creating this film that's supposed to bring awareness to, to horrible things that is happening to a demographic of people, woman, right? Uh, particularly, partic- like really in the, the Protestant church, right? But the only way that like change can happen if like men are seeing this. And I feel like because of a lot of the things that's happening in pop culture and kind of some of the things that's happened with the Me Too movement, I feel like there's like some anxiety with a lot of men.
1: At this point, Andrew is speaking very honestly about male anxiety When it comes to topics like domestic violence and sexual assault, the misconceptions and fears men face regarding generalizations that villainize all men. He's wondering, is there a distinction between immature boys who lacked education and accountability and the abuser with a capital
0: A? The only thing I think about as far as like, I feel like the only way men can kind of Involve themselves in this conversation not feel like that. Oh, this is not for them. If there is not like a posture of like, oh like Men are the problem and these men any of these men whether you're an 18 year old kid who just has really bad You've been hurt in your life so you end up hurting someone else or you're you're I guess I guess I think that, that there needs to be space to discern between sick evil men who manipulate and uh, uh, abuse and take advantage of women, and then just boys who have done things that are hurtful and hurt other people, but they're not trash.
1: A little background as to how we got to the next part of our conversation is we started talking about a public figure, one who I'm going to refrain from mentioning, but it had to do with an unfortunate response that communities sometimes have towards likable public figures who are accused of domestic violence or sexual assault. What ends up happening a lot of times, especially in pop culture or even in churches, whenever there's a big figure that does something bad, we automatically jump to the side of the person who's the perpetrator and say like, how do we help him? How do we sympathize with him? And like this person who was victimized by this person ends up having to like bear the brunt of that as far as they have, you know, what did she do? They do a lot of victim blaming. They do a lot of like um, not focusing the attention of like, how do we help the victim? How do we like really support this person who's been through something? And then once that's established, yeah, I want him to be, um, you know, restored. I want him to, to, to go through this journey of forgiveness. But do I know who he is behind closed doors? I don't. I think that that's something that we need to be cognizant of and the ways that we can be kind of manipulated by power in that yeah. sense.
0: Yeah absolutely um absolutely uh it's when you're talking about our church you're right on i think that um you know as as i've been learning like <laughs> there is uh so much there's so many men whether some some may be pastors some are just men who claim christians who are, are, are doing these things and many times because i guess of the tabooness ness of of this conversation um when that wife comes to church and she has this extra makeup because she has a black eye, what have you, we see it, but we turn a blind, we eye. Turn a blind eye because and if anything, if something were to happen and the, the man has to go to jail, we're not we're like, oh, how did we get brother so-and-so out of jail? Like, Yeah, there's definitely um, women, the demographic of women do not get uh, the, the right attention and they don't have the voice. That, that is needed and that, that's why a lot of these things are happening. I think, so So I completely agree with yeah. that. And I think every man should agree with that. And I, I would like, to hope, hopefully they, they do. I think where where things sometimes get lost in translation is that when I think about high school, I went to public high school for a few years, there were some random, when I, man, if I look back in 2005, there was some, when I was 16, there was some weird things that I would do um habit, habit cat call, and like things that I wasn't an evil kid. I just didn't know, right? And so I just think about like, man, when I was 16, if someone looked back at like uh, something dumb that I did, disrespectful and made made, made made one of my female friends uncomfortable, absolutely. Which is like, that's not okay. Um, but if someone were to look at that 16 year old kid and say like, he's evil, he's trash, because he did that, it was like, man, that's, that's, that's rough because maybe, just needs to be educated right and so i think for this film what we're really wanting to do and what i hope that i can i can gain is education right you know um and this is not a film against men against pastors against the clergy against the the institution no this is a film to educate all of us because when we all understand how um what's going on in in this country, in this church, with with, with women, I, I think that, you know, we're all gonna be better for it.
1: As I listen back to this portion of our conversation, I think both myself and my producer have grown throughout the course of our investigation because we're essentially asking the question, what is justice? What does it mean to be a victim of society and to what degree should that mitigate the implementation of consequences? These are questions our judicial system, which is a rather blunt mechanism, has been wrestling with for years. This topic alone could use its own podcast. And I think the the, the outcry has been we haven't known how to discipline properly. I mean, there has to be a system of repentance and you may not even ever get this platform back. And that's something that, you know, we haven't been, we've been very reluctant to want to do that to anybody. And we sometimes overestimate how quickly a person changes. What does forgiveness and restoration really look like in a way where the people who are hurt really do get restitution and that we're not handing away influence and empower too quickly because Uh, We've been too optimistic about how quickly people change
0: Absolutely, right and I completely agree. I think that the point I keep coming back to though is um, People getting knocked down in a crossfire, right like There are people who are predators And they're people who just don't know. Um, Once again, there's a spectrum. There's different young men that have been taught different things, but they're all victims of society, right? They're not just evil predators. They're just like, I'm just doing what I've seen and what I've been taught.
1: The fact that a person is incarcerated simply because they didn't know any better or were acculturated to violence by their communities or driven into criminal activities because of poverty is injustice. I believe my producer's desire to create Hard distinctions between the predator and the average person is because it's sometimes hard to come to terms with the criminal elements of ourselves. As an African-American male, he understands the necessity of education and the consideration of variables such as poverty, household violence, and marginalization within one's community. But there still hangs the question of, what is justice? What is justice for the victim of violence? This is a question that has so much at stake. How do we balance our sympathy for victims of society with our commitment to bring restitution to the victim of violence? What role does the church have in this process, if any?
0: This film, so there's like, it, in my mind, um, and you correct me if I'm wrong, in my, in my mind, what I would like to see from this, um, it's not only bringing awareness for uh, uh, allowing women to know that like, oh, this is a thing that I can speak out and we can get rid of these evil people in our midst, but also the young men, every young man watching this can like just humble themselves and realize that like, this is not attacking you, no one's coming at you, but this is opportunity opportunity for you to learn and understand um, what the mind of, a woman and like what women have been going through, and how you should treat and interact, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a layperson, whether you're just a Christian. Um, humble yourself and kind of understand okay, what is my place in this conversation?
1: We finally packed all the gear into a single van. My producer, our cameraman, and our sound technician are all headed to downtown Portland. The sun is setting, and we're hoping to get some iconic shots for that classic Golden Hour look. But I want to continue my previous conversation.
0: Unfortunately, when we talk about this topic, I think one of the reasons why it's so taboo is that a lot of boys, a lot of men have probably done sketchy, inappropriate things.
1: And they're just like, we just want to cover this up because we're trying to cover up our own stuff that we've done too in the past. But we don't want anybody pulling up our skeletons out of our closet.
0: Yeah, yeah, something like that. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like, man, like, Yeah. Uh, I think having descriptions of things that a lot of young guys have done, sexual harassment, catcalling, probably had some inappropriate thoughts um, or whatnot, having that described or said in the same sentence of a predator and abusive man and an evil, it's like, whoa, it's like, it's it's a lot.
1: Right. And And I I think that there needs to be a, a distinction between like, what is abuse versus somebody who is like a habitual chronic abuser mm-hmm. you know because I can say I've done things that were abusive yeah. and to be able to acknowledge and say okay like these traits these characteristics this is abusive you mm-hmm. know and if I continue to perpetuate this without changing without repentance without sympathy for the people that I'm hurting then I will become an abuser or I am an abuser at that point yeah. and I think that it's okay for us to acknowledge, and there's a fear to even acknowledge that these characteristics are even abusive, um, because we don't want to be labeled yeah. uh, and ab- the abuser as, yeah. a, as a proper noun. Really.
0: Yeah, I think it's probably similar to some of the issues we, we see happening with like the conversation of race relations, um, where you have a lot of white people who are very uncomfortable with that conversation, because they don't believe they're racist and they're probably not, you know, in the traditional sense, racist, like hating um, or thinking they're superior to another group of people. However, they may have participated in some of the uh, the benefits of, of racism and um, kind of having to look in the mirror and kind of like trying to figure out like, oh man, like, okay, I'm not racist, but yeah, there was that one time where I did that I thought that thought or did that thing to that person who looked different from me that's that's kind of can be kind of a heavy revelation right. and i think for myself when i was a young pastor still a young pastor but when i was a younger pastor um, i when i was 21 i dated someone who would be considered a church member and recently i was told that um that's spiritual abuse um, And that's really like troubling to me because i mean that person who i end up dating is actually my fiance now we're gonna get married and so it's like you know did i really do something that was abusive um i don't know i don't think so but i'm being told that like oh yeah like that's inappropriate for a pastor to do
1: and i think i think churches do young men a disservice when they place them into positions of spiritual leadership at such a young age you know because you're not going to be married when you're 18 you know like that you will be on a journey between 18 to probably 25 of figuring out a lot of things about life and to put them in a position of power to put them in a position of of spiritual responsibility uh, I think it's not doing anyone it's doing them a disservice and placing them in a precarious situation if for a fact like, oh, you know, you were you dated someone who's now your fiancé who is a parishioner where in other circumstances, you know, and in, in some states it's illegal, you know, it's even illegal for, for pastors to date their parishioners. Uh, they can be even criminally really? charged. Yeah. Um, and so, oh. <laughs> and so when...
0: <laughs> what and, state is that?
1: According to the latest research on sexual misconduct of clergy persons with congregants or parishioners by Bradley Tobin, his findings report one study of the Church of England has found that 67% of clergy persons responding have known a colleague who has engaged in sexual misconduct with the congregant. The sexual misconduct is referring to clergy relationships with congregants who are consenting adults. This statistic is not referring to child sexual abuse. Currently, 13 states, including the District of Columbia, have penal statutes that, in at least some circumstances, support the criminal prosecution of clergy persons engaged in sexual misconduct with congregants or parishioners. These mostly refer to misconduct that occurs within a counseling relationship, although some states also include some circumstances outside of a counseling relationship. It's because of the existence of a power imbalance, namely a person who by reason of their profession claims to have access to God, and the congregant or parishioner is a suppliant looking to gain access to God. So you can see why a sexual relationship in this type of scenario is a problem.
0: Yeah, I, 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 so I, I, I promise as we do this, I think there'll be moments where I'm unsure and maybe even bothered by some of kind of the, well, just to make something clear, I'm so excited about this information getting out there and people learning how prevalent um, abuse is in America and especially towards women. Like, I'm so excited about that and it's, it's been so humbling to hear your story and a lot of the people that uh, we've talked to in the past and we're going to talk to. So I'm really, I, I, I'm coming and I'm gonna pray for me by God's grace, I'm gonna humble myself and listen and learn. Um, and my hope is that uh, every guy who may be watching this, uh, despite where they, they're at in their understanding or even their discomfort in this conversation, will do the same, humble themselves and listen and learn.
1: At this point, golden hour had arrived as we stood before the Portland mural that said, you are confined only by the walls you build yourself? I began to ask our producer things that we should be mindful of as we move forward making this documentary. We need more male advocates. We need more male voices in the conversation of domestic violence and sexual abuse, but there tends to be a hesitation or maybe fear that they're going to get swept up in kind of the avalanche of accusations. Like, can you talk to us a little bit about that? About your own version of yeah.
0: Is that because of us? No. Um, yeah. Uh, so I think a few things that I've seen um, for me and, and from other people. I think traditionally, like in the past, one of the reasons I feel like a lot of men do not want to be part of this conversation. I think part of it is because we can't really control where, where the conversation goes, right? Like at least for me, as a as a, I think about myself as a young pastor when I engage in dialogue, when I engage in topics or I become passionate about something, it's usually because I can completely understand it. Um, Either I've been a victim or I understand what's like, what's wrong about it. And it makes sense and I can just go for it. I think with this conversation, there's a lot of nuance and there's, in order for me to engage with it, I have to come to terms with the fact that I will never be able to completely understand what it's like to be a woman what it's like to be uh, a victim of abuse as a woman in this society, right? And that's kind of terrifying, um, at least for me, like, because, you know, I don't want to spend my life being an advocate for something that I know I will never be able to understand. And I will never be able to be, uh, I I kind of lose control of the dialogue because I have to submit in many ways to, and then I'm just thinking about this. Like, I, I think there's an element of like, man like in order for me to be advocate i really have to submit uh all my thoughts and my feelings and really just listen and learn um and not be loud and have all my opinions and all my thoughts and feelings but really just submit that um and i think that's one of the the biggest fears that we've always always had and i think currently today and on top of that um the society we live in with when everything's really pc right and you have to be really careful what you say what you've done the mistakes you make and society isn't as forgiving and it's kind of scary to kind of like be willing to be vulnerable and talk about like hey i messed up and made that mistake because will society forgive me despite if it was a mistake despite you being young there still should be consequences there still still should be um uh you know justice served and man that's kind of scary you know um because i don't know if 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 yeah being okay with consequences is, isn't like a natural human um, uh, reaction. I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Tracy uh, and hopefully I can leave that conversation uh, being being more comfortable <laughs> with, with the discomfort, if that makes sense.
1: It is scary. And I'm not exempt from scrutiny. Labels like Abuser are difficult titles for any of us to want to be labeled as. So is there a distinction between being an abuser and participating in behavior that is abusive? When does a person turn into the proper noun title, abuser? And when is a person just a screw-up? How can we begin to break down these barriers so that these conversations can take place in a healthy, productive manner? So we're on our way to talk with Dr. Steve Tracy. Professor of Ethics at Phoenix Seminary and author of the book, Mending the Soul. We're meeting Dr. Tracy at one of the most iconic ice cream shops in downtown Portland, Salt and Straw. He's tall, about 6'2", wearing a casual blue plaid button-up, which is typical of the West Coast casual preacher. We're at the counter with a myriad of ice cream flavors. The smell of freshly made waffle cones fill the air. Steve makes a modest choice in ordering, one scoop of plain vanilla ice cream and root beer, also known as the root beer float.
0: I feel like if I did a push-up contest with you, you probably win. <laughs> like. I'm looking at these arms, man. Dude. Maybe how, six. How to much six. did you bench?
2: I was close to three till I tweaked my shoulder. Dang.
0: <laughs> because <laughs> earlier was we, we, we were moving the um, stuff, and he just like lifted up and just. Moved. <laughs> I was like, what just happened? <laughs> like, this guy is. And you say you're 62?
2: Wow, wow.
0: If only. We're rolling? Yeah. are good? So uh, Dr. Tracy, what has been the Me Too movement impact on the Christian church?
2: Yeah, Me Too has had a huge impact. Um, it's really forced the evangelical church to come to grips with some dark things about abuse that, frankly, have been stuffed under the rug, Yeah. sometimes just Covered up almost at a, in some cases at a conspiratorial level. It, it, ironically, it's particularly been secular sources, secular journalists, New York Times, Washington Post, Houston Chronicle, that have done exposés on particularly some mega churches. And the, the evidence was so overwhelming that finally churches had to say, hey, "We got to deal with this. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can't keep it under wraps any longer." Um, So, Me Too has forced the church, some individual churches, but I think to a large extent, broadly, Christian churches, many of them, to start to realize we we can't keep ignoring this, let alone covering it up.
1: My audio isn't that great, but I asked him about statistics regarding the probability that women are lying when they make a sexual assault allegation.
2: Ironically, when I was this last fall writing uh, a journal article on Me Too. A pastor came by uh, the house to meet with one of our roommates and he asked what I was doing and I told him. His immediate reaction was, women, they'll just make up anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I, I, it was pretty upsetting. I I need to get him a copy of this. Um, Recent research shows that, in large scale, police department, others, it's around 5% false reports of sexual abuse. Sexual abuse is the most underreported crime. Uh, sexual abuse perpetrators of all felony criminals are the least likely to ever face judicial accountability. And that tells us that roughly 95% of sexual abuse allegations are they're telling the truth yeah it's based on um, reality so that says as a church when we get an allegation we better take it really seriously false allegations can happen um, and when it does it you know can cause obviously a lot of damage but they're the exception and not the rule
1: some of the latest studies have found out that 95 to 98% of women are telling the truth when it comes to sexual assault allegations. It's a remarkably high statistic. We get ready to do our first interview at the beautiful historic First Congregational Church of Christ. A rainbow flag parades on the outside of the building, inviting those who the church often shuns. It is a stunning piece of architecture. The outside is crafted in beautiful stone masonry, and the inside is covered in magnificent stained glass artistry. It is the perfect backdrop to listen to Steve's journey of becoming an advocate for victims of sexual and physical abuse in the church.
2: I have to um, get some audio levels finally as you're all talking. All right,
1: can you hear me okay? One, two, three. Here we are this beautiful Monday morning. This beautiful Monday morning. It feels a little bit like a weekend. Yeah, but I'm still throwing up.
0: What time is it? What day is it?
1: It's taking us longer than expected to set up the gear. Time is running short, and we want to make sure we get the best use of our time. I'm trying to keep casual, but on the inside, I'm keenly aware that we might be overstaying our welcome very shortly. Next episode, we unpack Dr. Tracy's studies in domestic violence and sexual assault, along with his work in the Congo, and the manner in which these issues have personally touched his life. Here's a small taste of what to look forward to next week.
2: Almost thirteen years ago, uh, God opened the door for us to go to Africa for the first time and do an, an abuse seminar and it literally turned my life upside down. I came back and rewrote a lot of my seminary lectures. Uh, my wife Celesta would say Steve found his tears in Africa. Um, the levels of it, I mean, it, it, there's abuse around the world and mending the souls as a ministry exists to create resources to address abuse. We have stuff in almost 15 languages now you know, here in the US, elsewhere, and I'm so thankful for that. But the DRC has some of the worst rates in the world. The UN has called it the rape epicenter of the world. And it has ripped my heart in half, and it has been the most delightful thing I've ever done. The Jesus blessing on those who mourn means what it didn't used to mean to me, because I mourn constantly at the survivors, and they're friends. These are people I love. They're not just foreign faces. Jesus is there, and it's a privilege to serve them.
1: so much for listening in today. Please stay tuned as we continue this conversation in the following weeks. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. You can get updates on the upcoming documentary, Church 2, by subscribing to End It Now NAD on YouTube. And you can follow me at Kendra R. Snow with the Next. Do you have a subject that you'd like me to cover? Subscribe and leave a comment below, and see you next week.